I will say one thing, and I may come as a shock to people. Uh, this pandemic has been very severe. It's spread around the world extremely quickly and has affected every corner of this planet. But this is not necessarily the big one. This virus is very transmissible and it kills people and it has deprived so many people of loved ones. But its current case fatality is reasonably low in comparison to other emerging diseases. This is a wake-up call. If there's one thing we need to take from this pandemic with all of the tragedy and loss is that we need to get our act together. We need to get ready. Welcome to the February 2021 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. We begin with a statement from the World Health Organization, which on their last meeting of 2020 pointed out that despite the heavy human losses due to the proliferation of COVID-19, we are still not facing what Mike Ryan calls the big one. By most metrics, the U.S. public has been failed on many levels by the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I will be meeting with Dr. Renu Tipperneni, Dr. Jeremy Green, and Dr. Rebecca Gee to explore how public health can be galvanized so that a new administration can best prepare the country to face the big one. My name is Jeremy Green, and I'm a internist and a professor of medicine and the history of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Hi, I'm Renu Tipperneni. I am also a practicing general internist and an assistant professor in the medical school and Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. Rebecca Gee, a practicing obstetrician gynecologist, CEO of LSU Healthcare, former secretary of health for the state of Louisiana. Thank you, everybody. So we're here to discuss what we shall do in case there is a new pandemic. And as you just listened, this Ryan from WHO said that this may not be the big one. There may be worse to come. And so we have to learn from the current situation and prepare ourselves. And I'm going to start with Renu. In my view, one of the major traits of this pandemic has been its unequal impact on the different population, and in particular in disadvantaged populations. But the COVID-19 data, either in incidence or in mortality, do not allow us to accurately describe these inequities because they are based on non-random samples, there are selection process, misclassification issues. So what could we do to get a real image of what's going on in the population? I think you're right, Alfredo, that there is still a lot of work to do to really characterize and quantify these inequities, as you discussed. But I do think there's a lot we already know to do in public health. So first, we have data available to know where are there existing social inequities. It's not like this landscape has come anew during COVID. We know that this has been there for a long time, and it's falling along those same fault lines. So we can use publicly available data about social factors or social vulnerability. There are several available, including the CDC's Social Vulnerability Index, the Area Deprivation Index, and other measures from the census. We know where we see crowded housing, where people are food insecure, where people rely on public transportation to be able to work as essential workers. And these are risk factors for transmission. So 
Part of the approach is that we need to use existing data to inform where we're looking for these hotspots or inequities. The other part that we really need to do is community engagement. Partnering and thinking about a health in all policies approach, which has been talked about for a long time in public health, partnering with social service organizations, community-based organizations to not just address testing and treatment, which is so important, but also how do we address these underlying factors? How do we ensure people remain in housing? How do we ensure people can get their basic social needs met so that they're at less risk of infection in addition? So what would be your main advice to the new administration in the future? I think my main advice at the federal level would be use these federal data to say to states and local health departments, these are the areas we need to start identifying for testing and for social services and pour more resources into those areas, not just direct, but also fund that mandate. Rebecca, is this your experience too in Louisiana, the lack of data on socioeconomic inequalities? Look, we have a nation that is built on a patchwork quilt of non-interconnected squares for social services. You have buckets of Medicaid, you have buckets of individuals receiving food assistance, housing assistance, other types of social services, and there is not a holistic picture. And as a result, we have both redundancy, but more importantly, enormous gaps in social services and our understanding of vulnerability in this nation. And so what is needed going forward and what we ought to learn from COVID is that health is not created by sick care and that public health has to be the foundation of a healthcare system and that we must fund a robust and resilient public health system, as well as create the data infrastructure so that as leaders, as policymakers, as health systems, as families, we can understand what's happening to us so that we could properly address it. But what we will have to address, Alfredo, is that we spend so much money on healthcare and social services combined in this country, there won't be more money for it. We're gonna have to start taking healthcare dollars and putting them into social services. And that's the real work I think that's exciting to think about how we do that, whether it's through the healthcare system or other vehicles over the coming years. Jeremy, these disadvantaged population are also probably those that have the greatest need of access to treatment, to generic drugs. Is there the absence of surveillance data? Is this also an issue when we talk about distribution of drugs? Certainly. And I would just lean back and just say that when we talk about who is visible and who is invisible in an epidemic, we see in the very beginning of the pandemic the, the lack of reporting of data by race, by ethnicity, by documented, undocumented status, by carceral populations, which is to say these are groups that can so easily be understood as invisible in broader conversations about a mainstream public health that kind of implicitly assumes a white middle class subject. And one of the amazing things about the COVID pandemic, I would say, has been the way in which after activists, after activist pressure was put upon the necessity for reporting differences by, for example, racial and ethnic groups being affected by the pandemic, we see an opening in which a conversation about these differences did not get written down into an inherent biological difference between black and white bodies, for example, as has happened many times in the past, but instead led to a careful conversation 
about the structural determinants of racism and the way that they impact health. And so we've been talking about a dual pandemic of COVID and structural racism as a result. Now, that's a fragile environment that can really easily collapse back down again, as has happened in the case of so many epidemics in the past, into blaming black people for poor health, for example, into blaming immigrant populations for poor health. So as we move forward with data collection on disparities in the pandemic, it is vital that we continue to keep this window open in which we understand the structural forces at play and don't let it collapse again. I'm afraid we're already seeing some of that happening in the conversations about vaccine hesitancy and race right now. So, Jeremy, can we learn things when we try to uh, improve the access to the vaccine that can be useful later for generalizing access to other types of drugs that in particular disadvantaged population needs? So that's a great question, Alfredo. And I, I want to get to a positive answer. Before I get there, I need to get into my own experience as a frontline healthcare worker who has not yet been able to access the vaccine. It's just I wouldn't hold up the current system of vaccine distribution as being the model that we want to see moving forward. But that is not to say that a robust federal vaccine distribution program can't also be a model for other very successful means of dealing with drug shortages and for the lessons that we've learned from the pandemic. If the federal government was collecting a burden of disease information by state, metropolitan area, by region, that could lead to a much more effective process of allocating not only vaccine, but also other essential supplies needed to respond to a pandemic. I think right now, at this moment, we understand that of the 20 million doses that were supposed to have been administered by the end of the year, only less than 6 million of them, I understand, as of yesterday, had been distributed. And the current administration seems to suggest that that's a demand problem and has encouraged the local vaccine distributors to go off schedule and begin distributing doses that they have to anyone who wants them. But using my own example, I don't think we have a demand problem here. I think we have a supply problem. And I think it's hard to understand how the current vaccine distribution program has been using its ability to sense demand, using robust data to actually distributed supplies. So this is certainly something that could be done. And I think if there's a commitment of the new administration to generating real-time data of demand, using that as a sensor system to sense possible shortages and reallocate supplies, there's a tremendous ability to learn from the pandemic to create a much more robust allocation and supply system for essential medical supplies. I do want to say, though, that this is not so complicated. Louisiana was the first state to show statewide COVID data by race. And why did we do that? It was because under the Edwards administration, we founded the South's first office of health equity. We insisted on an equity in every policies approach. We created health equity action teams or heat teams at every aspect of the health department, whether it was behavioral health or aging, we evaluated our own attitudes and beliefs about race and bias. We had done all that work so that when COVID happened, we were ready. We were ready. The governor created an equity task force. We were able to show data by race. We were able to actively engage and do testing in communities of color. That's not to say there's not more work that needs to be done. The vaccine trust issue is real, and it is well-earned by a long history 
of inequity, of injustice, and unacceptable human rights violations that people of color have experienced in our healthcare system. But we have put a lot of work into it, and I think that's what every state needs to have. We need a national conversation about equity, but it has to be built in. I'm tired of seeing articles just talking about disparities and people talking about it. You don't just talk about it. You do something about it. You do it by ensuring that every policy that you make is addressing all populations. And if you do that, you can make a lot of progress very quickly. You know, I wanted to build on Jeremy's earlier point that I think a lot of times there's a blame the person approach here. It's about oh, it's about this person's vaccine hesitancy or lack of trust. But really, how do we build trustworthiness in public health and healthcare to make that possible? And it's through this explicit focus on equity and building those relationships in communities. And so I think that requires more than just talking about it, but a lot of hard work that's being done in some states and localities. We need to rebuild our public health system. Are there things we could do in relation to the vaccine campaign that could translate into long-lasting changes in our public health system? Alfredo, I think, yes, there are things that need to be done. But first and foremost, we need effective, competent, qualified leaders in these important jobs, people like Dr. Fauci, who are stable, qualified, and who give a consistent message. And when they don't know the answer, say, we don't know the answer. And the politicians need to stop talking and let the scientists speak. In Louisiana, for example, we have a communications task force. We're talking with churches and barbershops. We're talking with local leaders, the heads of our HBCUs, including Dr. Verrett, the president of Xavier University, is participated in vaccine trials. All of that needs to happen, but it's undermined if you have a federal infrastructure that is as chaotic as what we have just experienced. I would add into this that I, I think there's a great opportunity in a robust response to treating this pandemic as the national crisis that it is with consistent, scientifically led, validated, non-undermined leadership in the program. Yeah, I began my response with a negative, but I do think there is a substantial positive. I think that the Biden administration has a substantial set of opportunities to work on. I think that the ability to see secondary gain from this process is also in there. And I do think that in the framework that is being built in response to the current catastrophe, there are the seeds for a more robust framework for actually helping make sure we have essential medicines available when we need them. One of the foci that I've been interested in as a historian and health policy scholar is the way that we keep on talking about 21st century cures, but the cures that have really mattered the most in terms of treating COVID, in terms of making the difference between life and death, have been drugs like dexamethasone, have been supplies like gloves, masks. They've been 18th century cures, right? LA is running out of oxygen. That was discovered in the 1770s, right? So we need to have a way to talk about this essential infrastructure of public health and medicine. And I do think that the federal response to COVID, beginning with an effective vaccine rollout and the kind of data loops that need to match supply and demand can allow us to do that more effectively and align different federal and state public health initiatives. I know we're talking about a leadership vacuum at the federal level. And with federalism in our country, there are pluses and minuses. But to go with the glass half full approach for a moment, on the state level, we're hearing about great examples like Louisiana and in my home state of Michigan. Similarly, there's been an explicit focus on equity and COVID and expanding that to all public health efforts and thinking about getting the data by race, partnering with communities. And I think what we can learn from this is good examples in states that can then be you know, use as a laboratory for a rollout to other states, because I think we are about to see that shift 
to a new administration that likely will have a much more strong role at the federal level. But let's see what's been done already, learn from that, and try to expand on that if possible. So we see we need data and we need surveillance. Second, we need to have a better access to a treatment, vaccine, etc. But all this won't work if people cannot afford it and are not insured. So Rebecca, we have this experience in Louisiana, expanding Medicaid there. What are the options in a disaster of a pandemic when we know that 20, 30 million people in the population are not insured, what are the options to make sure that people can afford the treatment that is available to them? I want to talk about what we have today, but what we probably should have. So what we have today and what has been used during this current crisis is Section 1135 of the Social Security Act, which authorizes the Secretary of HHS to waive provisions of the Medicare, Medicaid, and Children's Health Insurance during an emergency to improve the flow of resources and reduce barriers. But that is a more limited role. The other thing that could be done that Sarah Rosenbaum and I just presented in an article is to help increase the access through the exchanges. So the exchanges, unlike Medicaid, are only open for a few weeks a year. You could have a disaster declaration that opens up the exchanges and allows people to enroll in health insurance and get subsidies for that health insurance during the time of an emergency. I think both of those are good options. Waiving some of the Medicaid requirements, making it easier. And by the way, Medicaid enrollment has gone up substantially. We're talking about a 7% increase in the past few months because of all of the unemployment and economic distress from COVID. So that it works okay. But the problem is that if you are low income or near low income in this country, you have a lot of churn, which means that you are likely to go in and out of your health insurance frequently. And as a result, The health insurance companies and the health systems that take care of this population are not willing or not incentivized to make the kinds of investments that lead to improved health. So one of the things, and I'm very excited now with the Democrats taking control of the Senate, that will be helpful is something like a public option where instead of having Medicaid where you lose, if you make a dollar more, you lose everything, then you're forced to go on an exchange where often families can't afford it, so they just lose coverage. You have more of an evening out where people can pay as they go. They're able to buy into the system and contribute when they have work, and they don't lose coverage because what we know is that states that have higher levels of coverage have fared better in COVID. For example, Louisiana with a Medicaid expansion, we were at one point the highest per capita tests for COVID in the nation, very early adapting. The funds that we got from the Medicaid expansion created a robust public health system that allowed us to invest in our labs and so on and so forth. Healthcare coverage is essential. This is just a basic human right. I completely agree that the big problem here is keeping people from becoming uninsured and staying that way with the tremendous unemployment issues. There's been a big drop in employer-sponsored insurance. So what Rebecca has outlined in terms of maintaining Medicaid and marketplace and expanding those is essential. On the Medicaid side, I know one thing that started to help is that part of the CARES Act, there's been an increased federal match for Medicaid to states if they fulfill certain requirements, and in this case, including not dropping people from Medicaid. And I think that's really important in this time period where we want people to be insured, we want them to be able to get the testing, treatment, et cetera. It's really an incentive for states to maintain that 
And on the marketplace side, I think it makes sense to extend open enrollment. We've seen instead shortenings of open enrollment in recent years. And so if this could be something that's built in, whether it's on the regulatory side or the legislative side, as in public health emergencies, this can be an option to extend open enrollment. That only makes sense. My comment here is, as a primary care clinician and a historian is really one of, well, what do we lose when we as a nation continue to link important public health priorities to insurance status? And I agree with everything that's been said about increasing insurance status in the insured population. But as a primary care physician in a community health center, I am continuously seeing uninsured and underinsured patients and people who are in an awkward transition moments between insurance structures that don't work for them. And in the course of the pandemic, from the very beginning, when we didn't know how to even do testing through till now, it's just consistently seeing that the responses that we build are not built for uninsured and underinsured peoples. And there's a public health consequence to this that affects everybody. And there's a reason why we have built certain parts of our healthcare architecture, like EMTALA, for example. There's a reason why emergency departments can't turn people away. But there's a public health critique to be made here about critical parts of infrastructure having this insurance vulnerability that really undermines all of us and undermines public health. Something that really amazes me is why didn't all those states that haven't expanded Medicaid do it immediately last year when it was clear we were in a terrible pandemic? I mean, it wouldn't have cost them anything, brought a lot of money, you know, responded to many of their problems. We had some states not only had the pandemic, but they had natural disasters. So what was at this point, what was the resistance toward even expanding Medicaid in an urgent manner? The Medicaid program enacted in 1965, now 50 years old, has unfortunately been fraught with ideological opposition since its very inception. Medicare, the companion program, always had public support. The veteran system always had public support. But there have been both, I think, racially motivated as well as bias motivated for other reasons negative views on Medicaid, and there's a notion that there are the deserving and the undeserving. And I think that those notions that are ideologically driven and have nothing to do with logic about state budgets or resources or, frankly, human rights or even the ethics of human suffering, which, frankly, we saw a lot of in Louisiana prior to the expansion that was totally unnecessary, these are ideologically driven issues. And so What needs to happen going forward is that it needs to be made in some ways mandatory for states to do it because states like Texas that haven't and wouldn't even last year expand for women who have had a baby for a few months after their pregnancy, for the year after their pregnancy. There needs to be a little bit more strong arming. But this is not unusual. When Medicaid was started, it wasn't until 1980s that Arizona actually had a Medicaid program. So this is just nothing new, unfortunately. I would just echo that it, it there's this intersection of political policy and, in our perspective, public health. And I think what we need to think about is how do we enhance the public health and policy messaging of what makes sense over what is very ideologically driven. I'm thinking here of the book by uh, Jonathan Metzl at Vanderbilt University Center for Medicine, Health, and Society and Dying for Whiteness, which he did a careful study of why it is that substantial populations in Tennessee comprised of individuals who would have directly benefited from Medicaid expansions were so directly opposed, viscerally opposed to this Medicaid expansion. So we have this dual vision where there is a new administration that is going to emphasize science-based public health and has an opportunity to really try and rebuild in this delicate moment. 
And we also see exactly the challenge at stake in terms of a fierce ideological opposition that goes against the self-interest of the people involved. And that is the road that we need to walk. messages emerging from this fascinating discussion about what needs to be implemented for public health to rise to the challenge of the pending big one. The first message conveyed by Dr. Tipperneni is that we need to be able to quickly identify the populations most in need for testing and for social services. This can be done by a partnership of federal agencies which can use federal data and fund the mandates and social services and community-based organizations which can also address the underlying factors of the pandemic. The second message stressed by Dr. Green is that a robust system of allocation of essential medical supplies is needed. This system should sense real-time demand and possible shortages and reallocate supplies accordingly. The third message emphasized by Dr. Guy is that adding a public option to the Affordable Care Act would have the advantage over Medicaid that people can buy an insurance and can contribute when they have work but they wouldn't lose coverage as their income fluctuates over time. I am grateful to all the members of the panel for taking the time to share and discuss their ideas. I also like to thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael Costanza for edits on an earlier version of this podcast. Anthony Bancy is the student producer for today's episode. Francis Jacob could not resist the temptation to paraphrase a great hit of 1966 about getting ready. He plays the guitar. The papers discussed in this podcast are available on the first look page of the journal. The February issue itself contains a meta-analysis on nicotine vaping and smoking cessation. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on our website for persons with hearing disabilities. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. That's it. Thank you for listening.